Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello friends and listeners and thanks once again for listening to Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with reviews, critics and criticism. This week's guest is Christopher Hooten. And in terms of reviews and criticism, here's Christopher telling you his life story, or his career story at least, in 30 to 60 seconds. So I'm currently a culture editor at The Independent, which I've been for a couple of years now and I've been with the Indie for just coming up to five. Um, My day day in, day out generally involves kind of organizing our coverage, deciding what people are going to cover, different people on my team, and then trying to find time to write reviews and features and interviews and run a podcast myself around the edges, which is something I've actually not had a huge amount of time for and is why I'm kind of switching roles uh, soon to get about back into the writing game a little bit more. So this was a very fun chat. Uh, Lots of ground covered, particularly in terms of film criticism and the move from uh, newspapers to online in the Independence case. Uh, So let's just get straight on with it and hear from Christopher. Um, so uh, one thing I noticed looking at where you've worked and, 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 and where you've written is that your stint at the Independent bridged the gap between it being primarily known as, as a print newspaper to it moving fully online. Um, I wondered how that shift affected what you cover and how you cover it, what, what sort of difference that made. Yeah, my way into the industry was strange, really. I, I'm a bit of an imposter, I think. Like most people, when you talk to them about how they get into it, they usually talk about, you know, degrees they've done master's degrees in journalism or they'll you know reel off uh, reel off a long list of names of places they've written for I kind of didn't really do that um and just I was doing a couple of internships to begin with uh, like you know a couple of newspapers bits and pieces here and there and I was at the metro just as a graduate age like 21 uh doing an internship I started picking up a f- well forcing people to let me do a couple of dvd reviews around the edges um I guess someone saw that I had some talent for that and that became a full-time thing and then I made the jump to the indie after about three years so I've literally been in the same building my whole career really and I've never been had a freelance mode but it kind of suits me I think I don't know if I have the self-discipline to hold down freelance so it kind of suits me to be in on time way less chasing invoices this way anyway exactly yeah and in terms of yeah it's been crazy uh the change really but for me like I've always pretty much been on the online side of things like I've obviously written for print um which is something that yeah there is a nice nostalgia for but I think you get over that quite quickly and realize that all the 
there's actually a lot of limitations to it and online there's a lot of opportunity to do things a bit differently and a bit more experimentally and it was yeah it was it was a sad time when the when the paper closed you know we obviously we lost a lot of great people who were made redundant it was a difficult period it was very uncertain uncertain for people working there but ultimately it was we came out of it the other side I think people did better than we actually thought and it kind of you know <laughs> it was suddenly sort of felt a bit like the office was gutted but then we slowly kind of built it built it back up and are now standing in good shape again I think yeah I mean and that's it's it's quite a unique position to be in in that I you might know better but I can't think of any any other major British newspaper that has effectively gone on to, to survive as a kind of thriving online place for for journalism what what do you what do you accredit that to yeah, well, like, you know, putting the the downsides that come with it of, like, people losing their jobs aside, I was kind of always in my mind thinking, I hope we're the first company to do it, you know, in the same way that, you know, at the moment you've got states in the US legalizing marijuana and they're reaping all the benefits of, you know, being the first people to do that. I think similarly, there's an advantage to being like, right, we're going to put all our effort into online and not worry about trying to continue on a print and funnel all resources and be like, this is the future, which it obviously is. And no one would dispute that now and really like kind of go for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're, you're the, you're the Napster of, uh, uh, well, in some way, <laughs> the Napster of, uh, of journalism. I'd prefer, can we use a more current one? Can we use like Spotify or something at least? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'm showing my age there. Um, <laughs> do you, we talked a little bit about it a second ago. Do you think the movement of journalism online is changing the types of pieces and writing we see? I wondered if perhaps we're heading in a direction where the distinction between a review or a preview or, or interviews is becoming more blurred and that the need for sections is starting to come second to writing a piece that's just readable and enjoyable and shareable. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm quite passionate about that actually i think you know a lot of those those distinctions are just hangovers from from print you know and people working in this is a section it has this slot it's wednesday so it's reviews day and i think a lot of them are really are unnecessary and i was thinking about that literally just today actually that like the the lines between like a preview and a review are often very blurred and i kind of often feel my job is more just to like Ex- just explain to someone why they why I really want to tell them about this I really want them to go and see it why that is and not be too concerned about what kind of like format that fits into mm-hmm. does that uh, does that then leading on from there does that mean that, that that you end up writing more pieces about things that you're you have a genuine enthusiasm for does that mean there's a danger that things that ought to get some constructive criticism are maybe ignored in favor of things that, that you love I think broadly there is definitely a danger for that and for like many reasons people will often now gravitate more towards stuff they're inclined to like and you know to sing the praises of um personally I think I just have a kind of healthy interest where I do want to sing the praises of a lot of stuff but also I do get very passionate about wanting to kind of keep in check uh you know some of the so film is my my biggest one i write about tv a lot as well but um i'm there definitely very interested in kind of like taking to task all the big kind of tentpole movies i think there's like a real responsibility to do that like often you know i I really want to champion small films that i think uh deserve to get get out there because it's so hard to do now you know they're desperate for people to be writing about them and talking about them so they can actually fill cinemas or land a vod deal and similarly there's there's a kind of a weird trend at the moment for people who I think overpraising big kind of studio movies in almost a sort of a semi-ironic 
way where it's become cool to give the latest uh you know the rock film five stars or whatever and i love the rock don't get me wrong mm-hmm. but it's that's kind of strange to me and i think or just because the, you know the, the the politics are right of the big marvel movie or whatever and i think someone needs to come in and be like guys like <laughs> you're being marketed to here and let's not like all completely lose our shit over this film mm. i do think it's 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 kind of a it's a weird and in some ways impressive construct especially with things like marvel that you could convince anyone that they need 19 films about any one top you know broadly one topic um it, I, yeah it's kind you, of it's, i can't sorry yeah i just i can't I can't think of a previous example, really. I mean, unless you're talking about like, you know, 12 installments of Friday the 13th or something like that, where, where people are sort of, people are happy to say, okay, yeah, no, I'm going to watch, I'm going to watch three of these a year. Similarly to, to Star Wars films as well. Like I'm not, I'm not knocking any of these films per se, but the idea that you kind of, that you'd want to a year like clockwork is seems like quite a new one. Yeah. And you know, fair enough. People do enjoy them and consume them in a not particularly serious way. You know, they might be watching them on a flight or whatever so they maybe that lends itself more to these like you know more not excessive viewing but you know more frequent viewings and they're being out more regularly but i think you already are st- seeing kind of maybe the end of that um particularly with star wars obviously with this new solo movie having it's funny that it gets talked about as a flop because it <laughs> made absolutely millions mm. but you know, in their eyes would be something of a disappointment and you know supposedly they're now like halting all kind of progress on other standalone movies and been thinking like okay maybe the fact that we had another Star Wars film out five months ago uh, means that people probably weren't quite ready for another one. Mm, yeah, it seems like uh, that, that that kind of gets um, gets forgotten a bit. Is 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 the competition for a lot of these films? I mean, they, they I've seen loads of uh, reasons given online for Solo not doing as well. One of them being that it's out amongst a lot of other summer blockbusters. One of them, as you mentioned, being that it's not been long since the last installment. But I mean that's the sort of thing people should be thinking about when they schedule these films surely and i mean and i guess also you know it's solo is unlikely to lose the battle for review space but but there will have been occasions especially with the monthly press where it's coming up against two or three other films that they also can't ignore yeah i think it's just it's kind of born out of like a cynicism on the studio's part where you know back in the 70s when they were they were making artistic films on big budgets you could tell there were obviously people there who were passionate about film and you know wanted to push these things whereas now it does you know just seem like they're like well we've got this massive property people do love it so let's milk every single last drop we can get out of it even if it and it maybe it's a little bit short-termist and you know that actually what they're going to find is that they (laughs) have a fantastic run of it for five or ten years but then are not able to touch it again because everyone's so tired of it but yeah, it feels a bit like there's almost a parallel with um, with the kind of wave of band reunions that started about five to ten years ago in that I can't really think of many bands left that have members that are well enough to play that haven't already got together for at least some shows and, and the appetite perhaps for a lot of those bands coming back again and again is waning in the same way that, you know, you don't need three Star Wars films a year. Yeah, I think, it's. I guess it's probably more egregious with bands because it's just so hard to think of an example where a band reforming in their 70s is is like a good idea <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just something inherently sad about it isn't it it's difficult to do it to do it well yeah totally um you mentioned uh, we were talking before this that a topic that interests you as far as reviews goes is the politicization of film and tv reviews i wonder if you could perhaps explain what the issue is as you see it 
I kind of like it's not that I think that there should never be a political reading to a, a film. Of course, there is. But I think it's just it's dwelled upon so much by a lot of critics at the moment and is like the it's the overarching factor for a film. And often, you know, like almost like a pre prerequisite and a predetermination. And people, I think, have made up their movie, uh, make up their minds a lot before they've even seen a movie now. And that's frustrating. And I mean, I'm not I'm generally just not a fan of cinema that has a message to it because I, the reasons I watch a film are to kind of more to, to feel something and to be moved or to learn something about what it means to be human and not just kind of be slapped around the head with like a, a message. And I think often, you know, it can be obviously be done, been done, be done sensitively, but often when politics are involved, the message tends to be very, very kind of one dimensional. Um, I mean, for instance, I just saw uh, Black Klansman this week, Spike Lee's new film that's uh, coming out. And I suppose this is somewhat of a spoiler alert, but I said the film is about, you know, a black policeman infiltrating the KKK and the, the parallels with what's been happening in Trump America and Charlottesville and everything are obviously they're so <laughs> it's so clear. And, you know, from five minutes in, you're like, I get it. But it does it subtly. It tries not to kind of mentioned the current situation there's a, like a nod here or there to trump and i'm like okay and i was quite enjoying the film and then okay if you if you might consider this a spoiler you might want to skip 30 seconds but it kind of finishes where they actually show some modern footage of the the rioting happening and people being mowed down and people chanting and then there's like a an upside down american flag that fills a screen and then slowly drains to black and white and it's kind of like i just looked at my friend who i brought the screening with me and was like Okay, we we get it by now. Yeah, it's very signposted. And there's also been kind of, I've seen criticism uh, among, amongst other critics, previous guests on the podcast, in fact, of films like Jurassic World, uh, Fallen Kingdom, where there's kind of, there's very, there's very occasional, very clunky references to things like, I'm sure this isn't much of a spoiler, but there's uh, a female character in the film who's described as a nasty woman in the same way that the, the term was thrown around at Hillary Clinton. And it feels like kind of, what what does you know is in some ways it's kind of nice that it's in a film that's so massive the sort of the recognition of that, that these things have gone on but also it does it does it what does it mean in in the context of a two and a half hour jurassic world movie where there's a volcano firing dinosaurs into the sea you know like it's it's almost in some ways it feels a little bit like they, they've tried to inject a bit of gravity into a film that's pretty frothy yeah, and I think, you know, we used to we used to be very critical of tokenism, whereas it now seems like, because there's a slightly different spin on it, we, we embrace it, you know, and I, I, a lot of the time when, you know, so you do start to see those films now realise that they have had way, way too few gay characters in, which is, which is true, but then they'll do it in such an obvious way that you can just tell that someone is kind of, the movie's gone round a boardroom table somewhere and someone's been like, no, we're going to have to add a, add a character in there. And the fact that, there's a tendency for people to really respond to that and kind of lap it up. It's like you, it, you're, you're being marketed to here, you know, if like, if, you know, take a film like Ocean's 8 or whatever, um, you know, where they've, they've made it female centric and that's great. And I think that's probably going to be a, a way more interesting idea um, than having it full of loads of dudes again. Same with Black Panther. I was way more excited to see uh, a superhero film about black people than I was about another bunch of white people, but they're relying on your, it playing on your political kind of preferences and your desire to be like pandered to and be like, right on. Yeah, that's great. And I think you've got to be, you've got to realize that when you go and see it, that it's the oceans eight being centered entirely around women. Isn't like a triumph of feminism. It's a company who are making a very calculated decision 
not dissimilar from, you know, the infamous Pepsi advert that did it so far that fortunately people saw sense. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's 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 a balance a lot of people are getting wrong, I think, isn't it? From from what we've seen recently, um, I, I don't I don't like for, by any means think that there's there's no room to talk about politics. It's more just if anything, I think because it feels like ninety five percent of critics right now are focusing on it. It's quite fun to actually be like, okay, I'm actually just going to focus on the artistic merit of this and not worry about it so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I guess it's, it, it almost becomes a point of difference in that it's it's referenced yeah. so heavily elsewhere. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, to change tack a little bit, you uh, worked as entertainment reporter for Metro uh, for three and a half years before The Independent. I wondered what instincts and skills did you bring with you from one job to the next? And was there anything you had to amend or leave behind? I think the kind of the early stages of, of journalism is kind of just getting all your embarrassment out of the way um, and all the shame, you know, doing in, doing an interview is an inherently awkward thing often and having to listen back to your voice it's the same and having to read back your own writing and it doesn't feel like it's you and I think you kind of have to get all of that stuff out of the way so I think it was it was useful in that sense um to just kind of build confidence um I think it kind of I had to when I you know fortunately now I get more of a more able to pick and choose but I had to cover a lot of more trashy stuff which I realized that there's actually is always a great value to, and there's always something interesting there to latch onto, whether it's, you know, Love Island is as interesting to me as Atlanta or something, you know, one of my favorite shows this year. Um, so that was kind of, that was kind of interesting and I think formative in a way. Um, but in a, in a way, my, my time there, I kind of, 
it was about kind of solidifying that I, the way I write, which I think is a little bit different, at least to the kind of broadsheet or tabloid or more generally newspaper style, was was okay. So when I would when I would get given a, a DVD review to do, I would write it in a certain way. I always try and write quite conversationally, as if I'm, you know, like talking to the reader in the bar in a bar that you know over a beer. That's how I would like to think of it. And I'd submit these these little reviews, and then I'd be you know really excited, kind of early on in my career, to see it come out in print the next day. And I'd read them back and it would be, everything would be completely changed. It would have been sub so much that it just felt flat to me and not like I was even like what I'd written or sounded like my voice. And I, I started to sort of question myself. It was a bit sort of like a gaslighting experience where I was like, am I just getting this completely wrong? I, I felt like I was doing something engaging, but the editors don't seem to agree. So maybe I'm just completely wrong. But fortunately through that experience, I think I stuck to my guns. And then once the internet exploded um then I think I started to find a little bit more of an audience just because that's another good thing about the internet is that you know it's not you're not so much at the uh the behest of an editor as you are the readers you know if if something gets shared a lot and gets read a lot then people know that you're doing something right as opposed to just hoping that one person who's your boss gets it does that mean you get situations a lot where you have editors that thinks that, that kind of, you know, they, they disapprove of something, but they ultimately have to concede defeat because it gets huge, huge reading? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say disapprove. I definitely, definitely say the situations where they don't, haven't got it. And they're kind of like, to them, it reads weird or they don't really kind of see necessarily see the appeal, but then they can see that, you know, it's getting traction and obviously that, Hopefully the traction's good and not people saying, what is this bizarre, yeah. terrible thing? And so I think that is that is helpful. There is more. It does make for a better review process of like how you're working the internet than when, you know, it, it goes in a newspaper and then you get very little feedback. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, I, I, the next question uses the phrase clickbait journalism, which I hate to use because I feel like an old man talking about the World Wide Web. I feel like this is a debate that's been and gone, but I'm having some fun on the podcast sort of arguing against my better nature and playing devil's advocate. So I wondered what you thought about this. Um, obviously, there's been lots of chat about, about clickbait journalism and about people kind of writing things that are engineered to, to get maximum readership or to boost search rankings and things like that. Do you think that clickbait journalism has basically led to degrading standards or is there an argument that actually it's added some pressure to people to make pieces more compelling and more immediate in a, in a smaller space or less time or fewer words is it possible that it's it's a bit of a kick up the ass for people who are kind of writing long meandering articles ah, it's a tricky one i can i think i probably land on the, the side of the first part that it has made specifically with reviews. I think it's made a lot more polarization. You know, there's, there's currency to a glowing review and there's currency to a very damning, hopefully yeah. humorous review. And I guess, are- I guess to a contrary review as well, if you're, if you're kind of arguing that an album is terrible because everyone else is saying it's great, then, then that's got a value in terms of clicks. Yeah. I think, you know, the <laughs> writing a two or a three star review, you have to be prepared. The fact that it's not, it's probably not going to get as many eyeballs on it but um like you say i don't think it's 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 all it's all negatives and there probably were some very starchy pieces being written before now that wouldn't get written because it would be more clear that they're not necessarily being read or enjoyed whereas before people would have just kind of maybe assumed they they were um but i think it's i think it's getting better like as I say, kind of, I was, I feel like I was there when the internet was switched on in terms of journalism and it's been a crazy, crazy 
kind of era you know it, it started off like the the wild west really you know you couldn't when i when i was first starting to write all these things you couldn't even it wasn't possible to share a link share a piece on facebook or twitter that wasn't a thing you could do mm. the only way it could go was you know through the website or through google and it was just a terrible kind of seo war um and then you know we had this whole period where viral hits became the thing and it wasn't a it wasn't about length if anything length was discouraged and that was kind of weird and that was you know when ascendancy of, of buzzfeed at that time and now you as you can see with people like them switching back towards longer content it's coming back round full circle again i think people are starting to appreciate and see the value of good long-form journalism again and i actually think not only will it come full circle but will ultimately end up and we already are arguably in some cases um, with like a better product online than we had in print do you think part of that evolution as well is um is in how people consume stuff so you know like you say pre-facebook pre-twitter things were less shared but also things took longer to load people were, were, were watching perhaps on smaller screens you know and, and i guess I guess um, the advent of, of iPads and the sort of proliferation of, you know, most households have a tablet as well as a phone, as well as a, a laptop or a home computer, that there's just more options for people to read kind of longer pieces. It's more comfortable um, and, and people are more used to reading them on, on articles. And maybe that's got something to do with, with the fact that we're coming back around to, to longer online journalism. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I like to think that maybe people were I've grown more accustomed to um, to reading longer pieces on their on their phones on their tablets. I know it's something I still struggle with. Like Mother Earth, forgive me. Like if there's a really long piece, like I still want to print it out and read it because I just find it so much easier to kind of focus in um, when the words are on the page in front of me. Um, but yeah, it would be nice. It would be nice to think people are getting more used to used to that. But you know, it's no we're two guys here talking on a podcast, and that's for a reason. And I'm a big fan of podcasts myself, and I think it's been an explosion because people do, you know, really appreciate uh, a, it's, you know, it's the very opposite of clickbait because you come in hopefully for a nuanced conversation. that's not just about what the big top line is going to be. And yeah, it just, for whatever reason, it is just easier to stick on and have it, you know, in your ears for two hours where you are very unlikely to want to sit and stare at a screen for that amount of time. Yeah. I think I'm certainly with podcasting. The appeal to me is that it kind of reminds me of zine culture when I was younger in that, you know, anyone with a sort of enthusiasm or question that wants answering can kind of throw something together and you don't need to have a huge amount of know-how as listeners to this podcast may well realize that to get something live, you know, it can easily be a one person operation. And so that this, I guess it's kind. It kind of makes me feel a little bit like the early days of the internet, in that in that things seemed a lot more democratic, and kind of you know people with with weight behind them didn't necessarily dominate the space. And eventually they will, as they did with the internet and TV and radio and and, and print and so on. But there is a kind of nice fertile period where you could just as easily be hearing something from you know one person that lives in in Manchester as you could listening to something that was made by Radio Four, and that's quite nice. Yeah, absolutely. It does. Yeah, I, I do. That is my experience as well. And like you say, it is it is a nice period. Like um, I'm a big fan of. Do you listen to the Dissect podcast? I don't know. Um, I forget the guy's name. Cole Kushner, I think. And he was just just one guy, and he did a season where he takes an album and goes through track by track. He did it with a uh, Kendrick Lamar's "To Remember Butterfly" first, and then for the second season, did it with Kanye West, "My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy." And each episode is you know focuses in on a specific song and picks it apart in terms of lyrics and. and 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 the actual kind of musicality and music theory of it and it was just one guy who's doing it and it became absolutely huge and it's it's amazing that 
just through sheer just through the dint of the fact that the product is so good it can it can find its way to loads and loads of ears and you know sadly as you mentioned that probably won't be the case one day it'll probably be we'll find the podcasts are dominated in the same way you know tv and film are by studios and that it'll be about can you get signed to this podcast label rather than being able to you know draw pull yourself up but fingers crossed we have a little bit longer for for the other little guys to shine long enough for this episode to go out at least um so uh, another thing i noticed in a lot of your writing is that many of your pieces refer to the act of interviewing or the act of reviewing a record even as you're doing it in some cases i mean obviously this podcast based on the assumption there's an interest amongst people in general as well as journalists as to how the system works and how pr works how interviews and premieres and press screeners and access work do you think that's the case do you think that that, that there's an increase interest amongst people in in how the other side of the media industry the other side of record industry the other side of the live industry how it's put together yeah i think it's kind of two things to this i think on a from a technical side there's definitely an increased interest which i'm delighted about you know that went back you know in the kind of in the 50s it was just about the, the the actors in the film that's all anyone cared about and then you know as people like kubrick came around people would start to be interested in directors for the first time and then, you know, probably only just recently, probably only since late 2000s, are people, you know, aware what a director of photography is and a kind of a like, you know, people will actually ask now, oh, who's a cinematographer on this film, which they just never would have done before. Um, so, yeah, there is there is a great appreciation of that, which is really cool that people are actually interested in that side of it. Um, but then also, I think um, going back to you talking about how I often make it quite first person about the review itself, I just think you can't like really review in a vacuum. And I think that's what people perhaps tended to do more before. And, you know, watching a film or listening to an album is such a, a personal experience, you know, whether, whether the, the, the album's being listened to like a house party or, you know, in your, on your earphones as you're walking down the street, feeling like shit at about 3am or, you know, and how you feel in the cinema and what you're feeling when you come out of it. And, obviously you don't want to <laughs> you don't want to be too self-aggrandizing and make it all about you certainly not but i think there is a like a, a place for that and i think people respond to it and there's sort of there can be a kind of humble umness to just talking about your experiences reviewing rather than just kind of treating it like a an academic thing where you're not part of it at all yeah absolutely um it would be remiss of me to get to the end of this episode without mentioning that you also host a podcast kernels for the independent um uh, what was the the reason to create that in the first place because obviously it doesn't necessarily direct people straight back to the independent site it exists kind of in its own right does it allow you to cover things that you can't cover in on the independent is it to encourage people to listen and later discover the paper or are there there other reasons behind starting it up um i think tying into what we're talking about like the, the the fact that it doesn't call back to the paper too much is kind of intentional just because i think people listen to podcasts as like a separate space kind of separate from that internet buzz you know whether it's an article or social media um uh, and yeah i think i like i like to I, I basically was just doing a lot of interviews and finding that you know sometimes i, I love doing them written as well but you know the the kind of personality or enthusiasm of the experience doesn't really come across which obviously you get more from from podcasting um and which you don't from those filmed interviews that are like five minutes long and usually a bit frothy and also i just think uh i, I absolutely loathe the term safe space but i think it feels like a bit of one to to the talent as well because it has happened but people were less likely to be taken out of context on a podcast and you know 
as soon as a you know you can take a it happened to David Lynch this weekend and then he ended up being tweeted by Trump with a completely misleading so that was like a particularly bad example of it um, and that will happen in a 5,000 word interview whereas in a podcast you kind of enter into more of a, a space where you feel like people can probably not be quoted out of context and talk a bit more freely. Yeah, and even if they are quoted out of context, there is a record that exists online that shows the context that was there to begin with as well. There's, it's, I mean, obviously, you know, it can, these can be edited, but often people don't because it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's more interesting to hear conversations unfold naturally. And so, yeah, I guess you've always got that, you've always got that context to go back to and, and, and something that, that an actor or director can refer back to to show that, that that's not what they meant or that's not how they said it. Yeah, at least until all the deep fakes start and then we're all screwed. Exactly. Um, well, let's uh, before we get onto the little quiz that we'll wrap the episode up with, uh, one more question that's that's a fairly broad one. What do you think uh, is currently overused in journalism? It could be a phrase, a concept, or a way of doing things. I think, as a, as a term, problematic is probably one of my least <laughs> favourite ones. I'm trying to coin the problematic it being like a, a, a critique that focuses on things being problematic because I think there's a lot of a lot of that and the kind of these kind of umbrella terms that as soon as they're uttered kind of render something like delegitimized. Um, so I guess there's little things that bug me like that. But other than that, I don't know. I think it's reasonably healthy, the kind of landscape of reviews. There's lots of people kind of breaking down those barriers and doing doing them in kind of different styles and different lengths and different formats. So I think that's healthy. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's better. Okay, cool. Uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we end every episode with a short quiz. So I've got five phrases here. Some of them you wrote, some of them you didn't write. Uh, and I'd like to know if you can tell which ones are yours and which ones aren't. Uh, test my hypothesis that I abandoned shame and embarrassment at an earlier age. It's definitely going <laughs> to... <laughs> okay. Well, here we go. Okay, so this is number one. Cliche or not, it's probably more captivating than ITV1 rivals Scott and Bailey, who just sort of slouch around everywhere looking mildly depressed. Do you think that was you, or was that not you? That sounds like me a while ago, yeah. Uh, it was you, and it was a while ago. That's you on Law & Order UK for Metro. Uh, number two, the fact is that pre-production discussions have become part of the mainstream experience of consuming films now. Everybody takes behind-the-scenes info like this into the cinema with them, and it becomes part of the film's narrative. That would be me as well, talking about what we were discussing earlier. It is, yeah. Uh, that's you on Daniel Craig's reluctance to do another Bond, which has become uh, something of an embarrassment now. He seems to have signed up to do it anyway. Uh, yeah. Yeah, re reading, reading your old article about how he said he'd rather slash his wrist than do it again has become quite uh, quite poignant. Doesn't it, when you're watching him do his thing? Yeah, I'm sure it, I'm sure it didn't hurt pay negotiations either. Um, <laughs> number three. Westworld seems to be falling into one of my least favourite forms of modern television. The let's have a bunch of storylines we follow each week that don't precisely connect or tell a closed narrative, but do presumably set up information which I guess will eventually be relevant. Duh, I, you know what? I think that's one that sounds like something I would say, but is not actually me. That's right. It's uh, Zach Handlin for the AV Club on uh, Westworld Series 1, Episode 3. Right. I, I threw that in as a red herring because I know you've been writing a lot about the second series of Westworld lately. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that young man. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Uh, number four. How should one live? What should one live for? Hedonism? Knowledge? Charity? Experience? Love? Is it even possible to extricate these from one another? I think that's me. I wish I could tell you what film it is, but I can't. <laughs> it is you. Uh, again, this is a while ago. It's you on the 25th anniversary of Groundhog Day. 
Oh, of course, one of my favourites. There you go. Uh, okay, so that's uh, that's four for four so far. Finally, number five. Uh, filing a review of Arcade Fire's new album, one that will be aggregated with myriad others, is really anti- antithetical, I can't say that word, to the whole point of it, i.e. that we're so overwhelmed with thoughts, feelings, opinions, content in 2017 that the meaning of words is diminishing at a rate of terabytes per second. That is indeed me being cynical about the internet as well. <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. So, uh, almost as cynical as Arcade Fire. Uh, so that's from the independent review of Everything Now. Uh, and that's a perfect five out of five. Well done. Amazing, thank um, you. So is there anywhere that people should uh, should or could keep up with you and what you're writing, uh, social media, websites, etc., etc.? Yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter at Christoph Hooten because you can't fit in the ER, went over the limit. <laughs> um, I try not to tweet too much. I'm trying to cut something I'm trying to cut back on for reasons of health, but um, I do try and put the work that I'm pleased with on there, so that's a good place to check out what I do and just obviously the independent kind of author page as well. Super. Um, okay. Oh, yeah. sorry. Anywhere else? I cut you no, off. No, I was just going to say, and yeah, if you wanted to check out, um, if listeners want to check out our podcast, it's at Kernels, and yeah, that'd be great. Super. Okay, that's it. That's the end of the quiz and the end of the episode. Thanks very much for talking to me. Cool. Yeah, thanks, Adam, and good on you for doing this podcast. I think it's a really, it's interesting the dynamic between reviewers and reviews, particularly like more so now than ever. So it's a uh, a cool idea and I'm enjoying the show well thanks very much I have so little shame I'm going to include that in the episode probably (laughs) there we go that's episode 18 of Reads Like a Four the podcast that deals with reviews critics and criticism my thanks to Christopher Hooten for being today's guest and indeed to all my guests so far that's uh, Chris James Stuart Mark Nancy Simran Merlin Boyd Ed, Laura, Laura, Sammy, Charlie, Peter and Mark. Uh, Plenty more to come. Uh, Next week I'll have a brand new chat with another critic. But for now, thanks so much for listening. Uh, Don't forget you can get in touch with us. It's readslikeafour at gmail.com on the emails. It's at readslikeafour on Twitter and also at readslikeafour on Instagram. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to drop us a review on iTunes, there's never been a better time than right now. Okay, thanks and goodbye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.